1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8, 14 through 20, and 51 through 58. Now I will remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, and if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of, the mo of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first few of those who have fallen asleep. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at last the trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. The word of the Lord. Thanks. We have great sound guys. <laughs> Amen. Well, it's great to see you all this morning, and I want to welcome you here to Central West End Church, especially if maybe you're visiting or if it's even your first time here this morning. 
We're especially glad that you're here, and I hope I get a chance to meet you at some point. If I haven't before, my name's Eric Stiller. I'm the pastor of Central West End Church, and we're really glad that you're here. If it is your first time joining us, uh, this is a great Sunday to be here. We've been in a series in the weeks leading up to Easter in which we've been looking at the big questions, the big obstacles and objections that people have to faith in God, and especially to faith in Jesus and Christianity. And, uh, you know, as I was uh, preparing for this series one of the things I did was I'd go around asking people, I would poll them and I'd say, hey, tell me your top two or three objections to faith. And, um, and I heard a lot of questions, but a lot of the ones that came up most frequently were things like, what about evil and suffering? Or what about the hypocrisy of Christians? Or what about God and science? Things like that. Those are the questions that people are asking. But nobody asked, what about the resurrection? Nobody's asking that question but they should. Why? The reason is because you can't live without hope. We all know that this world is not the place it's supposed to be. We know that it um, is supposed to be a certain kind of world and that it's not that kind of world. For instance, in a few days, we're going to mark the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., and on the one hand, you know, lots of progress has happened. But on the other hand, it seems like some things haven't changed, maybe even gotten worse. Racial justice is still a huge issue, and that's not the only one. Think about all the things that are challenging and dividing our country and our world at this time. Mass shootings, mass incarceration, even the more mundane, ongoing things like jobs, housing, uh, poverty, the opioid crisis. The list goes on and on. So here's the question. How hopeful are you about the ultimate future of this world? How hopeful are you about the ultimate future of this world? Many people in our culture today are very confident, very hopeful about the future of this world. They would point to things like science, technology, medicine, education, politics, and say, look, we're solving the problems of the world with these things. Other people um, are very, um, they're in despair over the future of this world oftentimes because of the very things like science and technology. Look at all the apocalyptic and dystopian TV shows and films in our culture right now. That doesn't come out of nowhere. Look at the anxiety and the concern many people have about things like artificial intelligence and the possible dangers that poses to our society. Some people are wildly enthusiastic about the future of this world. Other people are, are deeply concerned about the future of this world, which leads to the question... What are you hoping in? Because realize it's not just this world, is it? What about our own lives? Many of you, many of us all are aware, painfully aware, that our lives are not what they ought to be, not what we want them to be. Yeah, maybe things are going well in certain areas of your life, but, but what do we struggle with? We all struggle with things like loneliness or anxiety or insecurity, maybe bitterness over the past maybe addiction, maybe depression, whatever it might be. We all wonder, is it ever going to change? Is it even possible to change? We all struggle with hope. We all need hope, but we need a kind of hope that allows us to be, on the one hand, optimistic without being naive, because the world is a broken place, but on the other hand, allows us to be realistic without being cynical, without being jaded, without feeling defeated by the world. Where are you going to get a hope like that? Your ability to do that comes down to what you ultimately put your hope in. What are you hoping in today? Is it yourself? 
Is it humanity in general? Is it something else? I want to suggest that the way you answer that question determines your ability to live with hope, real hope. And that's why we need to look at the question of the resurrection. That's why we should be asking this question. Because, yeah, all these other questions are important. What about evil and suffering? What about the hypocrisy of the church? What about God and science? Those are important questions. But listen, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, none of those questions matter. But if he did rise from the dead, it's the only question that matters, or the question that matters the most, I should say. What kind of hope does the resurrection really give us? Let's ask two questions this morning about this passage Nicole just read for us. We're going to ask, did it really happen? And we're going to ask, what difference does it make? Did the resurrection really happen, and what difference does it make? Okay? First, did it really happen? Many people would say that the resurrection is a story that Jesus' followers invented many years after he died, and that eventually that story got written down in the Gospels, but it didn't really happen. It, it's, it's, a, it's a legend that his followers developed, and it's really nothing more than a wonderful, inspirational symbol that helps us to be better people and make the world a better place. The only way that that can be true is if you ignore historical evidence. So, for instance, Paul wrote this letter, 1 Corinthians, 25 years after the death of Jesus. Now, in in verses 3 to 6, Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So when he says, as of first importance, he, he means the basic gospel message. What is the essence of the gospel? Paul is very kind to us. He gives us bullet points here. He says, Jesus died for our sins. He was buried. He rose on the third day. He appeared to hundreds of witnesses. Bullet points, basic gospel message. Now, what is that? Every single scholar, biblical scholar, from the most conservative all the way over to the most liberal, they all agree that what Paul is giving us here is what's called a creed. What is a creed? A creed is a standardized statement of basic beliefs that's easily memorized and passed along to others. It's a statement, a standardized statement of basic beliefs that's easily memorized and passed along to others. So remember how you learned the Pledge of Allegiance? It's easily memorized. It's a creed, standard statements, basic beliefs passed along to others. That's what Paul is giving here. It's a creed. Jesus died for our sins. He was buried. He rose from the dead. He appeared to witnesses. Basic beliefs. It's a creed. Now, here's why this is so important. Contrary to what many people believe and will say about um, Christianity, this is not something that Paul invented all by himself many years after Jesus died. Let me give you the bottom line. Paul says, I delivered to you what I received. He's saying, I didn't make this up. I received this. I learned this from others. What's the bottom line? Virtually every single biblical scholar in the world today, there's almost unanimous consensus about this. Again, from the most conservative all the way over to the most liberal and the most skeptical scholars in the world will tell us that this creed was in existence one, no more than two years after the death of Jesus. One to two years after the death of Jesus. Even the most skeptical scholars say that. So, for instance, Bart Ehrman is one of the most famous biblical scholars in the world. They teach his textbooks in universities all around the country. He's also one of the most skeptical scholars about Christianity. He's an agnostic, maybe even leaning towards atheism. 
very skeptical about Christianity. But even Bart Ehrman says that this creed was in existence within one to two years after the death of Jesus. That means, first of all, that the resurrection is not a legend that was invented many, many years after Jesus' death. It was there from day one. This is an historical fact, okay? Now, many people would say, all right, so the earliest Christians, they believed this from day one, but that doesn't mean the resurrection really happened. And I would say, that's fair. But if that's true, you still have to come up with some other explanation for other historical facts, like what? Well, Paul mentions two of the biggest right here in our passage. He mentions the empty tomb and the appearances to the eyewitnesses. Jesus' tomb was empty and... Hundreds of people said that they saw him risen from the dead. Now, either one of those things all by itself would be very easy to explain. For instance, the empty tomb. Very few scholars deny that Jesus' tomb was empty. They try to explain why it was empty, but very few of them deny that the tomb was empty. Now, all by itself, if all you had was an empty tomb but no eyewitness reports, Um, The most obvious explanation would be the one that many people today still say, that somebody stole the body. But what about the eyewitnesses? Paul says in verse 6, Jesus appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive. Now, do you realize what Paul is saying here? There's an invitation embedded in that statement. Paul is saying, look, don't take my word for it. If you don't believe me, go ask the people that were there. They're still alive. You can go ask them. There is no way that Paul could have said that. No way that Paul could have invited skeptics to go check out the claims of the resurrection if it weren't true, if these people weren't there and would tell you what happened. That means that at the very least, hundreds of people at least believed that they saw Jesus risen from the dead, especially when you consider the fact that many of them died for that belief. You know, a lot of people will give their life for a cause. I don't know of anybody who will actually give their life for something they know is a lie. Now, all by itself, you could explain that by saying, well, lots of people report seeing their departed loved ones, but maybe it's just a vision or a hallucination. But here's the thing. When you combine both the empty tomb and the eyewitness reports, things get really difficult. Because if all you had was the empty tomb, but no eyewitnesses, yeah, you could say someone stole the body. But But if all you have is the eyewitness reports, but no empty tomb, and if you wanted to crush this movement, and they wanted to crush it, then all you'd have to do is go to the the tomb and get the body and produce the body. No one ever did that. No one ever did it. Are you thinking about this with me? We're just talking about basic, non-controversial historical facts, okay? Let me mention just one more before we move on. Because maybe, maybe somebody might say, maybe somebody stole the body, unbeknownst to the disciples and the followers, and then maybe all these other people, they believed that they saw Jesus risen from the dead. And that's possibly true. Um, Even though 500 people seeing him at one time is pretty much impossible because psychologists will tell you that mass hallucinations uh, don't occur. But let's say, just for the sake of argument, that's what happened, okay? Even so... There is no way that any of these eyewitnesses would ever have said that it was a physical resurrection, a bodily resurrection, a vision, yes, an apparition, yeah, but a physical resurrection with a physical body, no way, it would have been impossible. Why? 
You know, one of the things that difficult is difficult for us is we live in modern scientific times, and so we have a tendency to look at that and to say things like, well, you know, those ancient people didn't have access to modern scientific knowledge, so they would have been much more gullible, they would have been a lot easier to fool, they would have been a lot more open to something like a physical resurrection. That, my friends, is impossible. Why? Because of their worldviews. For instance, the Greeks and Romans had a worldview that said the spiritual world is good, but the physical world is bad. The physical world is tainted. It's, 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 it's based, debased. It's, it's corrupted. Why would anybody want to be involved in the physical world? The goal of salvation in the Greco-Roman worldview was liberation from the physical to the realm of the purely spiritual. The idea of a body, of a physical resurrection, would have been repulsive to them. Like, a body? Ew. In fact, you see a really good example of that in Acts chapter 17 when Paul goes to Athens, the center of of Greek thought and the most cosmopolitan city in the world at the time, and he's preaching before all the Greek philosophers there. And you see, he's going through his message and he's talking about God, he's talking about all these different things, and the philosophers, they're kind of tracking with him as he goes throughout his message. But then when he starts talking about the resurrection, it says they mocked him. They mocked him. Why? Because the Greek-Roman worldview said that the physical world is bad and the spiritual world is good, and nobody would be interested, very shut off to the idea of a physical resurrection. But for Jews, listen, for them it would have been even more difficult to believe in a physical resurrection because they did believe that one day the Messiah will come and he will renew not just our physical bodies but the entire world. So they did believe in a resurrection, but for them... It happens all at once. Everything happens all at once. So the idea that one person could be resurrected in the middle of history while the world still remains filled with things like death and disease and poverty and injustice, that idea is inconceivable to them. That idea is so ingrained into the Jewish worldview that even today, it's still the main reason that most Jewish people are resistant to the idea that Jesus could have been the Messiah. I've talked to Jewish friends who've told me this. In fact, I was talking to a friend just a couple of weeks ago who's a part of that community. We were talking about this, and he said to me, Eric, you couldn't get them to change their mind about that if you hit them over the head with a two-by-four. Now, here's the thing. Who started the church? Who were the first Christians? They were Jewish people, people whose whole worldview was probably even more resistant to the idea of resurrection than you and me. And that means that something way bigger than a two-by-four must have hit them. I mean, do you know why we're here today? The things we do today are always connected to things that have happened in the past, right? Why do we take our shoes off when we go board an airplane nowadays? Because 18 years ago, something happened, and it affects the way we live today, right? Why are we here right now? Why are we here today, this morning? Because 2,000 years ago, something happened that caused thousands of people to adopt a radically alien worldview overnight. Now think about this with me. How do worldviews change? How long does it take? Even the most radical worldview changes that happen very, very quickly over a short period of time, even worldview changes, the fastest of them, it takes decades. Decades for worldviews to change, even the fastest of them. But here we have practically overnight hundreds of orthodox monotheistic Jews proclaiming the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ and worshiping him as God. 
If that had not happened, we wouldn't be here this morning. We would not be worshiping here this morning. Now, listen, if you don't believe the resurrection happened, okay, but you still have to come up with some alternative, historically plausible narrative that will account for basic historical facts like the empty tomb, the eyewitness reports, the explosion of a radically new worldview overnight, and the birth of the Christian church. Are you up for that? The reason I'm still a Christian after 21 years now is because of the resurrection. Because the more I've looked into this, the more I've read, the more I've studied, the more I've tried to expose myself to the very best arguments that are out there, the more I've become convinced that the ultimate best explanation for all of these events, hands down, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Physical resurrection from the dead. It's the only thing that can really make sense of all of these historical facts. Did it really happen? It did happen. But secondly, what difference does it make in our lives? Let's get back to what we were talking about in the beginning. In other words, how does the resurrection of Jesus Christ actually give us hope here today, right now, here in 2018? Well, in many ways, but let me mention two of the biggest, and they're right here in our passage. The resurrection gives you hope for your life, and it gives us hope for the world. It gives, it, it gives you hope for your life, and it gives us hope for the world, okay? First, it gives you hope for, for your life. Look at verses 55 through 57. Paul says, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? He says, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Now, when he says the sting of death is sin, you know, if you get bitten by a snake, it's not the bite that kills you, it's the poison in the bite, right? Paul is saying that the poison of death is sin. Now, I know that that word in our culture has a lot of cultural baggage, but think about this with me for just a moment, all right? There was another ancient writer um, around um, in ancient Greece, not a Christian. His name was Epicurus. And Epicurus is very famous because he believed that when you die, it's lights out, annihilation, that's all there is. Total annihilation of the self. There's no more you, and therefore there's nothing to fear. Epicurus said that the reason we fear death is not because we fear that it's the end, but because we fear it's not the end that there's something on the other side, some kind of judgment, some kind of moral reckoning, and we're not ready for that. We all know this world is not the place it ought to be, right? But why is that? Why is this world not the place it ought to be? It's because we're not the people we ought to be. Why is there evil and injustice and sin and suffering in this world? Because we're in the world. I mean, Everybody has to come up with some way to answer that. Therefore, for instance, Epicurus believed that when you die, that's it, lights out, no more you. That was his way of dealing with this, with this fear of death, this fear that on the other side of death, there's something waiting for us. Um, Every single person has to come up with some way of dealing with this. Do you know what that is? We were talking about this just a couple of weeks ago, in fact. That's a doctrine of salvation. Now, I know like the word sin, salvation has a lot of kind of religious overtones, a lot of cultural baggage associated with that word also, but I want to suggest that it's a necessary word. In fact, don't take my word for it. Um, Luc Ferry is a French atheist philosopher who wrote a best-selling book several years ago called A Brief History of Thought. It's a wonderful little history of philosophy. In that book, he says something very interesting in the introduction. Here's, Here's what he writes. He says, it is by trusting in a God that some of us seek salvation. 
So far, so good. But for those of us who are not convinced, the problem remains unresolved, which is where philosophy comes in. In a nutshell, philosophy also claims to save us, if not from death itself, than from the anxiety that it causes. In other words, if religions can be defined as doctrines of salvation, the great philosophies can also be defined as doctrines of salvation, but without the help of a God. Do you hear what he's saying? Every human being has a doctrine of salvation because every human being has to come up with some way of dealing with the question of death and the fear that after death, there's some kind of moral reckoning. Now, I know in our culture, um, by far the most common doctrine of salvation, if we could call it that, is the idea that says this, you just have to be a good person. Don't get too hung up on doctrine. Don't get too hung up on all the things that, that divide religions. Instead, we should focus on, on what all of the great religions have in common. God accepts any good person. And if you just obey the teachings of the great religions, then you'll become a better person and the world will become a better place. Now, that is an incredibly popular and highly influential viewpoint in our culture. But did you notice something about that? Even though it presents itself as being free of any doctrinal statements, it is a doctrine. It is a, it is a highly specific doctrine. It is a very specific prescription for how to become a better person, how to make the world a better place, and it comes already preloaded with all kinds of assumptions about how you connect to God. You have to be a good person. It's all up to you. You have the power and the resources within yourself. All kinds of assumptions in that doctrine. Now, here's the problem with that. Like I said, none of us is the person that we know we ought to be. We've all done things. We've all said things, hateful things, cruel things, selfish things, prideful things. Oh, and that's just the stuff that everybody can see. Because we all know that every single person in this room has stuff inside of you, things in your mind, things in your heart, things you've thought that you would not want anyone in the world ever to see. We all have that inside of us. Now, that's guilt. Modern psychology says, well, we've got to put away our guilty consciences. Guilt is nothing more than a neurosis. It's a hangover from our religious past, our ancient superstitious religious practices. That's all guilt is. Modern psychology says that guilt is a pathology to be cured, not a sin to be forgiven. But it's not that easy. For instance, David Brooks last year wrote a really interesting column in the New York Times. It's called The Strange Persistence of Guilt. He says that for years, modern secular society really looked like it was headed more and more towards what he calls a culture of easygoing relativism. He said, we'd all become blandly non-judgmental, sort of chill, pluralistic versions of Snoop Dogg. You do you, and I'll do me, and we'll all be cool about it. Whatever feels right. But that's not what happened. Brooks says, we're still driven by an inextinguishable need to feel morally justified. We're still driven by an inextinguishable need to feel morally justified. He's right. I mean, look at all the moral outrage in our culture. Look at the ways that we um, signal our virtue and our righteousness on social media. Brooks is right. We're driven by an inextinguishable need to feel morally justified. But he goes on. He says, we're... We have no clear framework for goodness. Worse, people have a sense of guilt and sin, but no longer a sense that they live in a loving universe marked by divine mercy, grace, and forgiveness. There is sin, but no formula for redemption. 
We live with a sense of sin in this world, and yet our world offers us no formula for redemption beyond it's a neurosis to be cured. Or the best formula our culture has come up with is be a good person. It's all on you. There's the formula. You don't need a resurrection for that. All you need the resurrection to be is a wonderful inspirational symbol that helps you to make the world a better place. But you do not need the resurrection to be real because salvation depends on you being a good person. Our culture says the formula is all on you, but the gospel says, the resurrection says, it's all on him. It's all on Jesus. He's the formula. He lived the life that we should have lived but don't, and he died the death that we should have died, but now we don't have to because he died it for us. If the resurrection is nothing more than an inspirational symbol, then it all depends on you. But if the resurrection is real, that is proof that everything you can't pay for yourself is paid by Jesus. The resurrection, friends, is your receipt. And on it is stamped, paid in full, for everything that you've ever done or thought or wanted to do. Friends, if you're here this morning and you're exploring the claims of Christianity, the most important thing you can see is that your connection to God does not depend on you being a good person. Your connection to God, his love for you, his acceptance of you does not depend on your moral performance. It depends on Jesus' performance. Yes, there is a judgment. We don't like to think about it. It's very countercultural, very offensive in our culture to say something like that, but we know it deep down in ourselves. Our struggle is not whether or not that's true, but what to do with it. Jesus took the judgment that we deserve so that we could have the the blessing and the delight and the love of God that only he deserved. Friends, the resurrection is your receipt that that's true. So first, the resurrection gives you hope for your life, but secondly, it gives us hope for the world. Verse 20 says that Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He says the first fruits, very interesting word, very unique word. What does Paul mean when he talks about first fruits? That is one of the most important concepts that we could possibly know and understand as Christians. First fruits, what does that mean? If you have a garden, the first fruits is the very first part of the harvest that comes up out of the ground. So whatever you plant, whether it's corn or wheat or fruits or vegetables, whatever it is, the first fruits is both a promise of more to come and it's a sample of what the rest of it's going to look like, right? So imagine you have a tomato garden. And the first tomato that comes up out of the ground is this big, juicy, plump tomato. When you see that tomato, you know two things. First, more tomatoes are coming. Second, this is going to be a good crop. First fruits is both a promise of more to come and a sample of what the rest is going to look like. Jesus is the first fruits. That's what Paul says. That means that if you belong to Jesus, then you are going to experience a physical resurrection just like he did. But, but Jesus is not just the first fruits for you and me. It says that Jesus is the first fruits for the whole world. Where does it say that? Look at verse 54. Paul says, When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. Okay, now when he says that, Paul's talking about the resurrection of our own physical bodies, all right? He says, Then that saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. 
When Paul says death has been swallowed up in victory, he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 25, which talks about not just the the renewal of our physical bodies, but the renewal, the material renewal of the whole world. You see, every other religion promises some kind of escape from this world. Every other religion, we were talking about this, I think, last week. Every other religion has a very negative, very um, skeptical view of the long-term ultimate viability of this material world. And therefore, every religion sees salvation as some kind of escape or liberation from this world. And listen, it's not just religion that does this. I, um, I was reading an interview a few years ago with Stephen Hawking, the great physicist who just recently passed away. He said something very fascinating in there. He said, I believe that the long-term future of the human race must be space, and that it represents an important life insurance for our future survival as it could prevent the disappearance of humanity by colonizing other planets. Do you realize what he's saying? Stephen Hawking's, just like every other religion, is very skeptical, very negative about the long-term viability of this material world and says that our ultimate hope means that we have to get off this world. We have to escape this world. That is exactly what every other religion says. And yet, what do we want more deeply than anything else? We want to see this world become the place we know it ought to be. Every other religion says we're going to escape from this world. Only the Bible says, no, God is going to renew this world. Only the Bible promises a renewal, not just of our bodies, but of the whole cosmos. Friends, that is the ultimate defeat of death. It's the defeat of death. Listen, if if God's great promise is that he's just going to destroy this world and then carry us away to some disembodied existence, some celestial paradise, that's not really a defeat of death, is it? I mean, what is death? Death is the decay and the ultimate dissolution of physical matter, our bodies, right? That means that if God's ultimate promise is that one day he's going to destroy the physical world and carry us away to some disembodied existence, that's not really a defeat of death. That's a compromise. When I was a kid growing up in the 70s and 80s, you know, that was during the Cold War, and we had a word back then, some of you will remember it, detente. What is detente? Detente means I won't blow you up if you don't blow me up. That's what detente means. If God's promise is that one day he's going to destroy the world and carry us away to some disembodied existence, that is not a defeat of death. That is detente with death. But the resurrection is the defeat of death because it means that one day God is going to renew not just our physical bodies, but the entire world. Do you know what that does for you? That gives you a hope. It gives you a real hope, a living hope, but a hope that is very particular That is not a hope in humanity. When hope in humanity is your ultimate hope and you want to get out there and change the world, lots of people get out there, they're very passionate, very idealistic when they get started, but then 20 years later, 30 years later, they end up bitter, defeated, jaded, cynical. Because they realize, after being out in the trenches for so long, that the evil in this world, the evil in our own hearts, is just too much to overcome. We can't do it, and it's easy to feel like your labor is in vain. But if Jesus, think about this, if he's the first fruits, that means that you can work for meaningful change in this world without ever expecting that we're the ones who are going to bring about the ultimate change because that's God's deal. That's what God does. Our job is to be first fruits. We can work for meaningful change, even micro change, because we know that God is the one who's going to bring about 
ultimate change. Did you notice at the very end of the passage, there's one verse, it's the last verse. Paul gives us over 50 verses telling us about the resurrection, explaining the resurrection, and then he gives us the application in one verse. Did you notice what it is? He says, therefore. What does the resurrection mean for your life? Therefore. And notice what he says. Not, therefore, forget about this world because God's going to carry us away to some celestial paradise. He says, therefore, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor is not in vain. He's saying, get into this world. Fight for this world. Work for this world because you know that in the Lord your, neighbor, your labor is not in vain. Friends, ultimate change is God's promise. But our response to that promise is meaningful change or even micro change or even just the attempt at micro change. It's our way of being first fruits to the world around us. And that's why of all people, of all people in the world, Christians should be the ones that are most committed to fighting for things like justice and human rights and the environment. Because this material world matters. It matters to God and he's committed to renewing it. That's why Christians of all people should be the ones that are most committed to fighting against things like poverty and racism and disease because this material world matters and God's committed to renewing it. I mean, that's why the very first Christians started things like the first hospitals, the first orphanages. Did you ever wonder where those things came from? They realized the resurrection told them this world matters. Let's start hospitals. Let's start orphanages because this world matters. We should fight for these things. They did so even in the face of incredible persecution and even martyrdom. They died doing it because they knew that their ultimate hope was in the resurrection. And because they knew that, they knew that, as the poet George Herbert once said, death used to be an executioner, but now he's just a gardener. They knew that even if death laid them in the grave, it would only make them greater, would only make them better, would only make them more of what they're supposed to be. You know, at the Lorraine Motel, where Dr. King was killed 50 years ago, you can go to the motel, and it's the Civil Rights Museum now, and down on the ground, right in front of the hotel room, there's a plaque with a quote on the plaque from Genesis chapter 37, which tells the story of Joseph and his brothers who hated him and wanted to kill him because of his dreams. And so on the plaque, it, it quotes these brothers from Genesis 37, and it says, they said to one another, behold, here cometh the dreamer. Let us slay him, and we shall see what will become of his dreams. Death laid Dr. King in the grave, but what happened to his dream? It exploded. Is it ultimate change? No. Is there still a lot of work to be done? You bet there is, but it was meaningful change. He, it, death laid him in the grave, but it only made his dream stronger. It only made his dream bigger. Don't you see? The first Christians were first fruits. Dr. King was first fruits. And if you trust in the Lord, if you follow this Lord, this resurrected Savior, then you become first fruits to the world around you. you. Because of the resurrection, you can live a steadfast life, an immovable life, knowing that your labor in this world is not in vain. Friends, do you have a hope like that today? That is a hope that can carry you through anything because it's not a hope that depends on you. It depends on the risen, living, and reigning Jesus Christ. Is he your hope this morning? Because if he's not, 
then your ultimate hope ultimately is in you. And that is not a hope that can ultimately sustain you. But if Jesus Christ really is risen from the dead, and he is, then that is a hope that nothing can touch, not your failures, not the evil of this world, not even death itself. It just makes you more of what you're actually supposed to be. Is that your hope this morning? If it's not, I invite you this morning to make him your hope. And if it is your hope, then let's be the first fruits that he's called us to be. Are you ready? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this incredible promise